Something about this that's like... Well, it's like... You're expecting a, a letter that you're just crazy to get. Hello and welcome to Keep Off the Borderlands. My name's Free For All, a.k.a. Spencer. I normally do that the other way around. Um, this is an RPG about... No, no, no. This is a podcast about RPGs and stuff. Wow. So, what am I going to talk about in this episode? Well, essentially, I'm going to be picking up where I left off regarding procedures of play in the previous episode. But before I get onto that, let's see what's clogging up the pipe. Yo, Spencer, if you just want to put out episodes of you reading cool stuff, I am totally here for it, man. I'm just happy you're putting out episodes. I'm really looking forward to the episode of you and Barney talking because I miss hearing from that guy. He's an amazing dude. And yeah, talk more about Bastion Land, all that stuff. With your love of procedures and stuff, I'd be really curious to know, I I don't think you have, at least I've never, I don't remember you talking about it. Have you ever read the, the rules for Apocalypse World? I know people say you need a special sort of GM to run that game for you for the first time. I don't believe that for a second. Um, and I think it gives very clear rules and not rules, but procedures on how to play and what the, the MC in this case, that's what they call the referee, if you will, for apocalypse world, the MC, uh, how they should operate, what they should focus on, the order in which they should do things. I don't know. It's an older book. You know, it's been out for a while now. Like, a long time. <laughs> Apocalypse World has been around for a long time. So things might have progressed past it, and maybe there's better stuff out there. But the first time I read Apocalypse World, I was just like, oh, okay, I I absolutely understand it. I think anyone that reads the the book for Apocalypse World could run it. And I don't think you need any sort of different skill set to run Apocalypse World as you would any other sort of RPG. But anyway, man, if you ever do check it out or if you have, let me know. And keep on putting out episodes, man. I can't wait. Peace out. Thank you, Joe. Joe Richter of Hindsightless there. And I really appreciate that message. That's a particularly interesting question because Apocalypse World was one of the first games I picked up when returning to the hobby and I have to say I kind of bounced off it now don't get me wrong I thought it was full of great ideas and advice but this might sound a little strange I kind of found it confusing as a game I struggled to get to grips with some of the terminology the whole concept of moves 
seemed unnecessarily restrictive and it read more like some weird board game rules rather than an RPG. I have to say, I'm sort of with Jason Connolly on this one. Um, it's like it speaks a slightly different language or a dialect that was unfamiliar to me. Having said that, I'm pretty sure if I went back to it now, I would get a much, you know, I would be able to get a much better handle on what it's doing. Uh, but at the time, I've kind of felt like it wasn't the sort of game I was looking for. It felt like a different approach to play, a different structure, a different philosophy. Whereas when I looked at games like Swords and Wizardry or The Black Hack or Barbarians of Lemuria, they were doing things and using language I instantly recognised and understood. So that's what I gravitated towards. But yeah, really, really interesting question. And I should certainly go back and give it another look. Thank you very much for that message, Joe. Always a pleasure to hear from you. So just to reiterate, Joe, my issue was that I was looking for something a little more familiar. I recognised Apocalypse World was doing something really interesting and potentially innovative, but I also felt it was attempting to address certain issues of play that I had no real experience of. And as a result, I felt like it wasn't really aimed at me. And it's not as if I have anything against Powered by the Apocalypse games. I'd really like to get around to playing Monster of the Week, for example. I'd love to give Cult a try. City of Mist, Spirit of 77, just to name a few. Here's a little something that cropped up when I was taking a look at Apocalypse World, which I think might be illustrative of my problem. Now, I was looking at the rules for moves and dice, and I'll just, I'll just read, read them out and make comments as I do so. So I hope you can distinguish between what's written here and my annotations, if you like. Moves and dice. The particular things that make these rules kick in are called moves. All the character playbooks list the same set of moves, plus each playbook lists special moves for just that character. So essentially, I'm understanding that as being like classes in D&D, yeah? Your threats might list special moves too. So I'm guessing that there are other things you can do which will be listed under threats that operate the same way as moves. Got it. When a player says that her character does something listed as a move, that's when she rolls, and that's the only time she rolls. So basically, from what I understand there, is that not every action counts as a move, but when it does, that's when you roll the dice. Then we have the next paragraph, and this is where I start to struggle. The rule for moves is to do it, do it. The rule for moves is to do it, do it. 
<laughs> Sorry. The rule for moves is to do it, do it. In order for it to be a move and for the player to roll the dice, the character has to do something that counts as that move. And whenever the character does something that counts as a move, it's the move and the player rolls the dice. Now, there's something about the way that's explained that just seems incompatible with the way I understand language. It's kind of, it's almost crashing my brain. It's written like a riddle, and I don't know why. If I understand what they're saying in that paragraph, it's it's further explaining what they said in the previous sentence, which I understood perfectly fine. And then reading that subsequent paragraph has almost eradicated that understanding. Now, I might be exaggerating that a little, but I do think it's illustrative of what my problem is. Maybe I've just got a weird brain. I can't help feeling that the explanation would be improved by removing that paragraph. It doesn't add any further understanding to the previous sentence. And in fact, it's interfering with what I thought I already understood. Obviously, reading on, it becomes clearer what's being said. Am I being picky? Am I being pedantic? So I read on and it made a lot more sense. And it does lean into that whole low prep improv play that I look for in games. Um, But I do feel there is a fundamental shift in the structure of play in the way that you are expected to interact with the world. A move being attached to a stat, which is essentially reinforcing the old idea of the GM calling for a roll rather than the player asking to roll against a particular skill or attribute. He's subverting the whole idea that the answer isn't on the character sheet, literally by putting a bunch of potential outcomes on the character sheet. That's a nice way to approach things. Then there's the whole plus one, minus one forward thing, which was another thing that I initially wrestled with for some reason, it being essentially nothing more than the result of one move impacting on the outcome of your next one and so on. Again, this is simply a matter of a change in terminology which threw me. It only took that to occur a couple of times for me to feel the book was being a little contrary unnecessarily. I think that's why I probably didn't persevere with it. Did I read it cover to cover this time? No, because frankly, I lack discipline. I'm a bad reader. That's one of the reasons I think I really enjoy reading RPG books because you can pick them up, flick through them, see something that triggers the imagination and... But I digress. Also, and you can call me a prude if you like, but I do find the whole sex moves thing a little bit of a turn off, ironically. Although 
I'm sure Joe could talk me into almost anything. <laughs> I still don't really get why they're there. It feels a little bit like an attempt to be edgy, which is something that doesn't always work for me. It seems I'm just a finicky old crank. But as I say, it is full of great ideas. It does do what it sets out to do. Everything is covered by relatively few rules. And I don't doubt I would have a lot of fun playing it. So there you go. Thank you for that call, Joe. Thank you for prompting me to take another look at those rules. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Since recording that section, I have listened to the good friends of Jackson Elias. In their most recent episode, they discuss the sexual mechanics that are included in Apocalypse World and other PBTA games. And I think I have a better understanding of what they're doing there. You know, they're there to potentially alter the social dynamics within a party. And yeah, I feel that my initial reaction to the idea of uh, sex being part of the game was something of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, Spencer. Uh, listening to you talk of procedures reminds me I've been going through my Mike Shade, a lazy DM stuff. His most, well, not his most recent, but one of his more recent books, the Lazy DM's Companion, has got a lot of procedural stuff in, and uh, I like the way he, he breaks things down into uh, procedural methods. He's a bit of a master at it. I, well, to my mind, you know, his style suits me. And I I know you've you've talked about it. I don't know how f- familiar you are with this content. I know it's it's not your usual brand, but yeah. Uh, and you're not alone. I think procedures and uh, a framework or scaffolding for anything you're doing, especially if you lack a little bit of confidence, it it is super helpful, mate, super helpful. Anyway, Keep up the good work, mate, and I'll catch you later. Colin, Spike Pit Green there. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Colin. Um, I am familiar with the Lazy DM stuff, although, having said that, I was not aware of the Companion book. Uh, I do like Mike Shea's stuff. I, I enjoy listening to his podcast. I've got the Lazy DM and Return of the Lazy DM, um, but I, no, I was not aware of the companion book so i will endeavor to check that out thank you very much for that colin bringing that to my attention and um great advice there as always i mean yeah it does come down to a matter of confidence really and um well yeah thank you very much for that call i'd also like to take this opportunity to thank colin for contributing to me feeling called out the other day, after listening to his episode State of Play, in which he spoke about buying sprees, a shelf of shame, things lost in the shuffle, that in itself felt like a bit of a wake-up call. Then it was followed by <laughs> it was followed by an episode of Cerebravore, hosted by Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. 
and featuring Colin where they spoke about curating their game collections. They went deeper into the subject of perhaps getting rid of things that they didn't use, stuff that they owned, that they'd yet to get to the table. And, um, well, let's just say that didn't help matters. (laughs) Great episode, though. But that was followed by an episode of Roleplay Rescue from Che Webster, entitled Fear of Starting, which, um, well, I don't know. If I didn't already feel like the universe was grabbing me by the collar and slapping me around the face, let's just say that that episode was next in line, waiting patiently, baseball bat in hand. Despite my feelings, that was a great episode too, and well worth checking out. In the last episode, I went through the procedures of play as presented in Into the Odd, Electric Bastion Land and Mythic Bastion Land. And since then, Chris McDowell has been at it again on his Bastion Land blog with another post on taking action. Chris breaks things down into six steps of the taking action procedure. Intent, leverage, cost, stakes, role, and impact. And the previous one links in with that as well, being entitled, what to do when you break the game. And this is essentially about teaching people how to play and what to do when you get the rules wrong. I'm not really gonna get into that here, They're both really interesting posts, which I will provide links to. So um, I got thinking about procedures of play when I was sitting down attempting to solo and thinking about the sort of things that sometimes get missed out when I've been playing games, particularly when I was playing OSE, Old School Essentials. A couple of things I noticed that cropped up occasionally, and I'd say they were probably common pitfalls of playing Theatre of the Mind. The first is things like companion animals, retainers, hirelings, and forgetting about them, uh, them being overlooked in combat or forgotten about at important points where their presence would make a significant difference to how things play out. Another issue with theatre of the mind is specific locations of individuals. I can think of a few times when I described, and this isn't particularly OSE related, this has happened a few times in, in different games. I describe pushing open a door, looking into a room, then something happens that would only be possible if I'd actually entered the room. And I thought to myself, that maybe I wasn't clear enough, that I hadn't intended to enter the room, basically had accepted the consequences because at the end of the day, it's more entertaining to just accept the outcomes rather than trying to 
retcon stuff. I'm not sure how you'd go about avoiding that one in particular, no matter how detailed you are with descriptions. People are going to imagine things differently and there's always a degree of assumption in these things. It's just one of those pitfalls. Other little things like not always being aware of what time of day it is, stuff like that, not necessarily big problems, but they can kind of pull you out, out of immersion from time to time. As I say, not a big deal. So I kind of wrote down a simple procedure of play, primarily thinking about a solo session in an attempt to remind myself of the kind of stuff that occasionally gets overlooked. And I'm not talking like, you know, order of actions and stuff like that. I've essentially got into the odd in mind when I wrote this. So, procedure of play. One, describe the current situations to the players. What do they see, hear, smell, feel? What time of day is it? What time of year is it? What's the weather like? Two, invite questions from the players so they can make informed decisions. Provide useful information about the immediate observable environment. Present players with interesting choices. Acquiring some information may call for specific actions. The true nature of things should be left for players to ponder. Three, ordinarily, player characters may act now. Ensure everyone that wishes to act has the opportunity to do so. Consider opportunities for enhanced actions or the mitigation of impaired ones. Are there any non-player members of the party who may also act now? 4. The environment responds to the character's actions accordingly. Does the party have sufficient resources? Brackets, torches, ammunition, food, etc.? Do any actions call for an ability save or luck roll? Do any actions produce special effects, brackets, weapons effects, target responses, etc.? Roll for an encounter if the characters are noisy, loitering or entering a new area. During longer periods, roll for an encounter approximately every four hours. That's in-world hours. And repeat. Now, that is very basic. There are things I could probably elaborate on there, but I'm quite happy with that. And I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. There's no specifics there regarding, say, hex crawling, point crawling, dungeon crawling. Although I would say that I had dungeon crawling in mind when I was writing that. I realise that, you know, because it's basic, because I've not really run a game yet for other people and I'm not in the habit of doing this stuff, even in solo play. I've played a bit, had varying degrees of success and sometimes I forget stuff that could have saved my character's ass. But this is what I'm talking about. A basic underlying structure as a foundation for all other GMing advice. Another blog I enjoy is a blogspot 
blog uh, called Traverse Fantasy. I'll put a link for it in, in the show notes by Marcia B. Very theory-heavy discussions, which I enjoy, and with quite a critical eye on the OSR. Marcia put out a couple of interesting things on itch. A little trifold called Turn Contemporary Dungeon Crawl Procedures. There's an explanation on the back that I'll just read out for you. This is a variation of a house rule from games where you take on the role of an adventurer investigating a dungeon. It was originated by the blog Nepraxis as the hazard die. The function of the event die is to simulate the bookkeeping of classic dungeon crawl games via random rolls. In doing so, it encapsulates in one table the totality of the classic procedural dungeon crawl, i.e. random encounters, resource management, and countdowns for spells and light sources. Only one of these events was randomly determined prior to the innovation of the event die. The rest required stringent timekeeping and note-taking. Each turn taken risks any one of the six now-random outcomes, each posing an obstacle to the adventurer hopeful for treasure underground. Some events are, of course, more costly than others. Regardless, the more time you spend in the dungeon, the more resources you expend and the more harm you risk to your character's self. This pamphlet does not offer rules typically given in a book. You probably know well enough the consequences of exhaustion or the impact of a weapon. Besides, the procedure described herein is in itself a self-contained game of risk over time. You need only something for which you would risk life and limb. Basically, it takes the things you would ordinarily track and reduces them to D6 rolls, either 1D or 2D6. So you've got D6 events. So a result of one gives you an encounter. Roll for a random encounter and determine its reaction. Two, percept. A hint, clue or sign of nearby presence is found. It will be the next random encounter. So essentially it's a heads up for the next encounter. Three, exhaustion. Spend a turn resting or else become tired. If you're already tired, then you become exhausted. Four, depletion. Torches burn out. Lanterns dim or burn out if they are already dim. Five, locality. The state of the dungeon changes, perhaps according to a clock or countdown. Six, free turn. Nothing happens this turn. You can breathe. And then it goes through the encounter setup, uh, determine encounter type, roll for reaction, find if anyone is surprised, take initiative, repeat until done. And then there's a little encounter table, 2D6 encounter table, replace the taste. And then you've got an exploration procedure. One, referee describes the room. Two, players declare actions. Three, actions are resolved. Four, event die is rolled. Five, repeat one to four until departed. Now, uh, that's all very nice and simple and very nicely presented in this little trifold here. I understand that that might be 
reducing things to a degree that may not delight everyone. But I just think it's a, a neat little way to do things. I'd be interested to see how that comes across in play. Marcia is also responsible for a game which is freely available on Itch called Fantastic Medieval Campaigns, which is essentially their take on original D&D, you know, the white box, the three pamphlets, rewritten with a more modern audience in mind. I haven't actually read it myself, but I do intend to at some point. As I say, that's freely available, and I'll provide a link to her itch page where you can find both that and turn and a few other interesting things. And to wrap this episode up quite nicely, I wanted to talk briefly about a game that I backed on Kickstarter sometime last year that recently arrived. And that is Mail Order Apocalypse, a role-playing game by Christian Bugetti. I'm almost certainly pronouncing that wrong. Um, But this is a mark of the odd game, meaning it's based on the rules of Into the Odd. It's a post-apocalyptic setting, as the name suggests, that's quite heavily influenced by Apocalypse World. What makes it the Mail Order Apocalypse is that essentially AI have taken over running everything. Humanity has very much been kicked to the sidelines, eking out an existence on neglected wasteland. If you imagine this is a near future setting and you are like the train robbers of the Old West, except you're robbing delivery drones in order to survive. And what particularly like about the book itself is it does have a certain sense of humour which is a little reminiscent of paranoia except instead of uh, fighting amongst yourselves or your ire is directed at the AI whose attitude towards humanity is that essentially we're a mild annoyance getting in the way of it trying to go about its business whatever that might be Here's a little bit about the tone of the game. So, what is this about? MOA wants you to have fun with daring heists in a post-apocalyptic future. These heists are necessary for the survivors because no one gets the basic goods needed for life legally. On top of that, MOA is informed by a lot of OSR and DIY sensibilities. I owe a ton of fun to people like Paolo Greco, Jez Gordon, Luca Rayetz, Jeff Reince, and of course, Harold Wagner, for having me properly introduced to this particular corner of the hobby. As a result, you will find a lot of tables in this book that will help you generate random outcomes, and because I have an odd sense of humour, the results from those tables will often guide you towards the weird and whimsical instead of the hard and gritty. Whimsy does not need to mean harmless, though. Death can happen to your character, even though it isn't all too likely. But if it does happen, your group should use it to drive the stories of the other survivors forward. But you, as a player who has lost their survivor, should not dwell on the tragedy. Roll up a new character 
and rejoin the action. All whimsy and light-heartedness aside, if you and your gaming group really want to, MOA can also be a game about social critique and a starting point for philosophical discussions about, among other things, what can and what do we own? What do we do about the misuse of corporate data mining? What does the world owe us? Explore the effects of liberal and libertarian views. What to do about excessive capitalism? How do we define our relationship to robots and AIs? The basic idea of MOA, of course, came from the silly pun that most of the current post-apocalyptic scenarios, be they in books, games or movies, had a most appalling lack of post, as in post office and delivery. There is one movie that got it right, but the 9% Rotten Tomatoes score also speaks for itself. Don't take things too seriously. This is a game and you should have fun with it. I think this is something I could really get my teeth into. Well, that's about enough from me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your messages. I really do appreciate those. If you'd like to leave me a message, you can use the messaging function on the Anchor webpage. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, along with a link to SpeakPipe, which may be more helpful for you. You can always message me via my email address at Spencer dot free thrall at gmail.com be that text or audio you can find me on twitter at free thrall there's also a keep off the borderlands facebook page and i can be found on discord in the audio dungeon and on a few other channels and if you can figure out how to find me you know more about how it works than i do alternatively you can find links to all those things over on my card page at freethrall one word dot card with two r's dot co I'd also like to thank TJ Drennan for all his wonderful music and it just remains for me to say take it away TJ Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.